Morning. I've learnt over the years that I'm no good at saying goodbye. I don't know if that's a common problem that people have or if there's just something wrong with me. I'm terrible at it. And you know how it is when you're sending someone off at the airport and it's someone you actually care about, they're going to hop on a plane and it's a good chance you won't see them again, or at least not for a very, very long time. What I find myself doing every time, uh, waiting at the terminal or driving them in on, on the, in the car, I can't seem to stop myself from just babbling about nothing at all. Like asking again what time their flight is and asking them about what the weather's like back home. And honestly, I don't care what the weather's like back home. I know what time their flight is, but for some reason it seems as the time remaining ticks down, so does my ability to engage in meaningful conversation. I wish I had a talent for uh, coming up with really meaningful parting words or was really good at giving uh, appropriate gifts and thoughtful presents, something. Because at the moment, all I've got is a handshake, uh, a pat on the back, and then I'll ask you about how the weather is. That's how I say goodbye. But not today. Uh, this is going to be my last Sunday with you as I, before I start as transitional pastor at Eastwood. Uh, and John was kind enough to arrange for me to give a one-off talk today to mark the occasion. And so what I decided to do in preparation instead of uh, babbling was to read through the final chapter of each of the letters of the New Testament to see how the apostles signed off and said goodbye to these churches that they were writing to. And what struck a chord with me was uh, Paul's parting words in this first letter to the Corinthian church, which we had just read for us, uh, which on first reading sound like a whole bunch of incidental nothings and, and filler and what I typically do when I'm saying goodbye, but let me show you why I find this chapter actually quite meaningful and quite appropriate for us uh, in a day like today. First, would you pray with me that uh, God will show us what he wants and that we'd have ears to hear what he's saying. Let's pray. Father, we ask again that you would show us more of your mind and your heart as we look into your word and that these particular words written by Paul at the end of this letter, we ask that your spirit would show us what you want us to show us. Uh, what do you want to show us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, these final paragraphs, and the final paragraph of a lot of the letters of the New Testament, are where we find a whole lot of personal requests and instructions. And the content is not necessarily connected to the argument of the rest of the letter. So 1 Corinthians, um, this whole book is fantastic and fascinating. The first 15 chapters of which have very little to do with this final chapter. But what this final chapter does give us is an insight into Paul's relationship with this church and what he wants for them. Uh, there's at least three parts to this chapter that I could see. And he begins by talking about this fundraising project that he's got them started on. Uh, he'll name and honour individuals next that he's encouraged by and then we get to his final farewell. And what you get in this chapter is immediately this sense of Paul's awareness that the church is bigger than what they have just in Corinth. Uh, he mentions different cities. He mentions different places around the world where God's at work. And you get the sense that Paul really is a global citizen. I don't know if the United Nations coined that term or, or someone else, but they certainly use it a lot. Uh, to become a global citizen has become more of a thing in our day and age. With the rise of technology and the concern about climate and other things, the world's gotten smaller and our reach has gotten wider. So to be a good global citizen is to look up from your patch 
and to see that the world is facing global challenges that call for global solutions. Uh, younger people probably resonate that in a way which uh, is unprecedented. Earth Hour, or the reducing the use of single-use plastic bags, for example, are ways of us all to get better at being global citizens, making us more environmentally conscious. But Paul is, in a different way, an incredibly good global citizen. He's wanting this church also to care more than just about their own little patch. Because he sees a world that's facing significant global challenges that call for global solutions. And he wants people to change how they think and how they act for the sake of the dignity of their fellow human beings and for God's sake. Only he's not on about global warming or sustainability. Paul's big ticket items are providing for those in need, the spread of the gospel, the health and vitality of the church, and the coming of the kingdom of God. And if you look at the first four verses there, you see him giving instructions 1 Corinthians 16, 1 of 4, uh, instructions about a fundraising project that is earmarked for Jerusalem. Uh, we're not given much of the context here in 1 Corinthians, but I looked into it. At the time of writing, it seemed there was this great famine in the area around Jerusalem. Uh, there's no rain, there's no food, and it was a pretty long period of time where Jerusalem was struggling. Uh, Jerusalem was where the gospel exploded from. It's where Jesus was crucified and where he rose again. It's where the 12 disciples started as their base of ministry. It's where the New Testament church was birthed. And Jerusalem was in famine. It was in trouble. And the church in Jerusalem was in as much trouble as everyone else in Jerusalem was because they too needed to eat. And there's this thread that you pick up through all of Paul's letters uh, written around this time that he's writing to all these different non-Jewish churches based outside of Jerusalem. He's writing to all his Gentile partners and regions outside of Jerusalem to take a collection of money up where they are to give and relieve the needs of the believers in Jerusalem. It's a big financial project and it calls for generosity and intentionality. And so he writes in verse 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift. If it seems advisable for me to also go, they will accompany me. Now, that reads like fairly uh, pragmatic sort of words. But it belies a, a heart of generosity. Here at Pena, we've been talking for years about being generous. And uh, not just in giving money to mission partners, which we do have a strong legacy of, of doing here. But in recent times, the project has been for us to be generous in helping other churches out in our city who are struggling. And in giving of ourselves to see other people be uh, strengthened. And that's what this whole partnership with Eastwood is about. And before Eastwood, it was what we were trying to do with Lidcombe. It's about us giving of ourselves to bear fruit in these other churches. And there's a rightness about God's people working to meet the needs of other people who need help. Us who've received so much from God, it's right for us to look up and to see who else we might be able to bless. And Paul's here asking the Corinthians to be planned and well-organized in how they give. 
He doesn't want them just scrounging around last minute to see uh, what pocket change they have on hand. He doesn't want them making impulsive decisions about this. He says, starting from now, all of you, first day of the week, before any other expenditure, intentionally set aside whatever amount of money. He doesn't make a rule about how much they're meant to give. He just says, you think about it, how much you can afford, how much you want to afford. Be generous like that. Save it up so that the money's all ready when he comes. They're meant to be sacrificial and intentional about how they live, which I think we can learn from financially. I think uh, we, can, we can learn from that. Look to the books. I think we're a bit behind budget this year, actually, up to date. But also with this Eastwood partnership, we've got this whole new opportunity to be generous and sacrificial with money, for sure, but with more than money, too. And as John uh, prayed before, I'll ask you to pray too, that our church might be an intentionally generous church, that we might be intentionally generous people who are looking to bless other people. Um, The next part of this chapter, Paul was giving them what it seems to be his draft travel itinerary uh, he's planning to visit. He really wants to. You look at verse 5 to 9. You see, he says, I want to go through Macedonia and come to you. I might stay with you for a while, maybe even spend the winter before I go on my journey. Now, there's this really interesting little phrase he keeps dropping as he, as he speaks. He says he'd love to spend time with them, but he drops this little phrase, verse 7, if the Lord permits. He says, For I do not want to see you now, only make a passing visit. I hope to spend more time with you, if the Lord permits. Uh, just as an incidental, it's not a bad way to plan and talk, um, because... We might make plans, but would you be open and listening for what God's doing in your life, which may take you places you might not otherwise have planned to go? So he's hoping to come to them in the near future, but what he says is quite fascinating in uh, verses 8 and 9. He says he wants to come to them, but in the meantime, he's engaged in what he calls effective work in Ephesus. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 8. He says... Um, I'll, I'll try to come to you if, time, if the Lord permits, but I'll stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door of effective work has opened to me. And there are many who oppose me. That's why he wants to stay. Um, if you cross over to Acts 19.8, or write it down in your notes if you're taking notes, Acts 19.8 tells us that Paul was using the synagogue in Ephesus as the hub of his teaching for three months while he's writing this letter to the Corinthians. And in this lecture hall in Ephesus, the synagogue, he had daily discussions there for two years, making sure everyone in the city had a chance to understand the gospel. And um, from what Acts tells us, Paul was doing amazing miracles through him during that time. And Acts 19 also tells us there was great opposition to his work. And you think if there's great opposition to you in your work, you might take that as a cue to move on somewhere else. But no, Paul says, a great door of effective work has opened to me, and I want to stay here because there are many who oppose me. He thinks it's good to stay and endure and strengthen the church and to fight this good fight and to run this race with great endurance, the race marked out for him. His options are to either spend a nice, pleasant time with friends and Christian brothers and sisters in Corinth uh, who are close to his heart, he could do that, or he could stick it out in Ephesus where there's greater opposition and, and greater trouble, but effective work. 
And he says, for the sake of the gospel, he chooses Ephesus. Do you see how this man thinks and how his heart beats? It's good for the Corinthian church and for us to hear that. And it's not just about what God's doing in Corinth. It's not just about his own comfort for this apostle. There's a great big world out there that God is working in and Paul is very aware that he's got great things to contribute, even in the most difficult places. It can't just be about Pennant Hills and our church and what we're doing here. Whether it's here at Penno or elsewhere, what you're looking for is not the path of least resistance and greatest comfort. In fact, some of the greatest places to put yourself is where it's going to be relatively hard. Complacency is overrated. Go where the action's at. Uh, next, you find a couple of paragraphs about Timothy and Apollos, who you might have heard of in Paul's letters, other workers along with him. But I actually want to draw your attention to three other people named in the next couple of paragraphs a bit further down who I've never heard of outside of this chapter. You see them mentioned there in verse 15 and 17. Uh, a man called Stephanus, another guy called Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Verse 15. Paul writes, You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia? They have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such people deserve recognition. These three men were apparently among the first people to become Christians in Corinth. They were locals who the Corinthian church had sent to Paul uh, to assist him in his ministry and to refresh him. Uh, presumably, they're the ones who carried the letter that um, the Corinthians wrote to Paul, which Paul is replying to, and he's sending these three guys back carrying this letter that we're reading right now. And these three were valuable to Paul, not just in carrying letters, but the short-term team was apparently a source of great joy to Paul because of their practical help and their love and their care, which Paul says made all the difference. They refreshed him, verse 18. And not just material needs, but in his spirit, in his emotional needs. And, and I feel like there's a part of that that we're joining in with Eastwood. Um, we're hoping to send them people who will refresh them and help them and assist them in the work that they've been called to do. As he sends these three back to Corinth, carrying this letter, he wants to commend these three and for the church to honour people like them. People who work hard and sacrifice and give of themselves for the kingdom of God. We don't typically honour people very well in Australian society. We, I think, operate more of a cut the tall puppy down syndrome. But I think it's not a bad place, uh, as we say goodbye, to remember to honour people who work hard amongst us. People like Winnie, our church administrator, who I can pick on today because I know she's on holidays and not here at the moment, and I'm probably not going to listen to this talk. But honour people like Winnie, who choose to take this role that she has at church, which you know has meant a significant pay cut for her, and it's meant a massive amount of work that comes with getting this community functioning as well as it does. Honour people like John, our lead pastor, who I can't pick on because he's the lead pastor and he can handle it, who's given 
17 years and counting, uh, to faithfully teaching you the Word of God in season and out of season. And the unseen things of carrying the burdens of responsibility that come with being lead pastor. I'm not just going to pick on the staff. There are many, many people in our church who share in the work. Bucket loads of volunteers, all our key ministry leaders and our elders submit to such people and everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. Verse 16. They refresh my spirit, they refresh your spirit also. And they deserve recognition. Verse 18. We should say it more often, I think. Those of you who give of yourselves to serve us, it's a joy to have you in our life and to stand alongside you in the work and to be served by you. And what we're anticipating in the next little while is maybe a leaner few years where things are going to be tougher and harder, and especially then they're going to need you to submit to them as they try to serve and lead amongst you. In the final part of this chapter, the last few paragraphs, Paul includes this general hello to Corinth, uh, verse 19 until the end. A general hello on behalf of the churches where he's based. But even here in these final goodbyes, there's a strange little jarring wake-up call buried in between all the niceties. There's this little sharp reminder for people to snap out of their complacency. You see um, the nice stuff. Verse 19, Aquila and Priscilla say hello. And then Paul takes his scribe's pen and writes verse 21, presumably himself. He signs it, verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Uh, Verse 23 sounds pretty good. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to you all. That's a polite sounding way to end a letter. But did you notice that little gem that comes between? Verse 22. How's this for a memory verse? 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. What's that doing there? And it's actually a lot stronger in the Greek. Be cursed. Uh, It's more like if anyone doesn't love the Lord, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. Come, Lord Jesus. And you're not exactly going to find this kind of verse printed in a picture frame or a little bookmark in Kurong, are you? If anyone doesn't love the Lord, let him be damned. Love, Paul. Come, Lord Jesus. We've lost that sentiment almost entirely, I think. That fierce and passionate loyalty to God. Maybe we've got to learn a lesson from all those footy fans at grand final season who are not the least bit shy about where their loyalties lie because they know how great their team is and anyone who says differently is wrong and at fault. You look at the diehard Roosters or Raiders fans tonight, they don't give a hoot about being politically correct. They love their team and you better get on board and that's just a game. Don't get complacent about this. Remember what game we're playing. Remember what's at stake. When was the last time you were righteously outraged when people reject the news of Jesus? Not just sad, but outraged. How can they hear about Jesus and then still choose not to love him? Or are you quite okay? Have you just forgotten and gotten used to our world's rejection of Jesus? It is not okay. And I'm not saying that our age should ever boil into violence or hatred, but it should bother you. 
It should move you to action. It should. People's rejection of God is and always has been the global problem. To make a comparison, yes, the melting of the polar ice caps is probably not good. But people rejecting Jesus, that's the thing that's ruined our present age. And it's going to ruin lots of people's eternities. And we know full well that God himself has provided already the global solution. It's already all done in Jesus. Let's not get complacent as carriers of the news playing this game. Don't forget, don't let the fact that you're living in the pleasantly sunny hills district, just getting on with life, don't let that inoculate you from the urgency of Jesus' mission. Last thing I'll leave with you is this. Maybe we should learn from the activists of our world. They're calling for us to change the way we think and act for the sake of our planet and for the dignity of our fellow human beings and for future generations. If that's their remit, how much more ours? uh, Let me end my time with you with a word of prayer, using the words of the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Father, help us to be on our guard. Help us to stand firm in the faith. Help us to be courageous and be strong, whether it's here at Penno or wherever you would send us. May we do everything in love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.